This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Black What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fury, and this is Black Ball. When Donald Trump was elected, many of us who have been following politics for a long time were a little stunned at the overtness and the display of, I don't want to say politically incorrect, but uh, uh, the display of uh, identity politics that was being expressed in a way that we hadn't really seen in politics in a long time. There were people that felt like their rights were being taken away in, in not just the United States, but many Western democracies. There were people that wanted to fight back in a way that a lot of us found to be counterintuitive and counterproductive. But even more than that, there was sort of a new frightening aspect of politics that we weren't really used to in this modern age, and that would be populism. And there have been many books written on this subject. There have been many essays written. I have seen countless documentaries. But this book excites me because it's written by a person who knows this stuff. And it's also written at kind of a perfect time in our present day history, I guess I would call it. I had Christine Anderson from uh, the European Parliament on, and uh, it was really both interesting and kind of frightening to hear her speak about immigration, uh, about who she blamed for the woes inside Germany, uh, which, by the way, is ranked consistently on uh, on the index charts on freedom and uh, the economy and, and a whole bunch of good uh, statistics that, that would find it kind of peculiar that that someone would have that viewpoint of that country but it's a growing kind of movement all over europe and of course in north america as well and we saw it here in canada when politicians in this country attached themselves to that convoy movement and kind of work to further accentuate the polarization that we have in this country um his book is called has populism won the war on liberal democracy please welcome my guest, his name is Daniel Dresch. Daniel, how are you, sir? Good. Good evening. It's nice to meet you, and um, I'm really happy to have you on um, because I find your book to be extraordinarily timely. And, uh, you know, I was listening to you on an interview the other day as I was doing my Daniel Dresch deep dive. Is that, am I pronouncing your last name right? Is it Dresch? That's right. Dresch. Okay. Dresch. And, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, you didn't seem surprised that this trend is happening in places like Europe and North America. I was wondering if I got the right idea um, for that, and if so, why are you not surprised? Well, this is a, a, a unstable time. We've had a massive economic crisis, uh, a pandemic. Uh, we've had uh, a wave of unprecedented political refugees from uh, Syria and Afghanistan. So this is a t time of uh, disruption and uh, structural change that is uh, unprecedented. It reminds us of the post-war period, perhaps maybe of monetarism in the 80s, but a new period, and there's a lot of change coming down the tube that deals with values, not just the economy, deals with security, deals with identity politics. These are all uh, relatively new uh, and of changing the way we present and operate.
Yeah. It, it, what? How much can be said for that? Pe- the people often talk about the pendulum swinging. No, they, they talk about uh, the Obama administration, which I thought was uh, misperceived by the right as some sort of socialist movement. I, I, I kind of thought he was center right, to be perfectly honest with you. But but how much of that pendulum swing is to blame for this? You know, because we always see like the Bush years brought in the Obama years and the Obama years bring in the Trump years. And we just see that pendulum uh, as it's perceived by citizens to be swinging back and forth from the left to the right. Is that a phenomenon that is old or new? Old in the sense that we've lived political cycles before. For instance, full employment from the period of, uh, let's say, after after war till the 1980s. Then in this, we said uh, there was a huge new cycle around austerity and deregulation economically. Uh, This was also a time of growth, but it was also a time of uh, enormous inequality. People were not sharing in the uh, sharing in the, the the wealth that had been created during this time, and there were a lot of left behind, and of course we had a new phenomena that jobs were going. To the promise of free trade, there were a lot of losers, and now what we're dealing with is the. Um, this, 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 these hundreds of thousands of people who are, are very angry and see standard of living has declined and they blame the elites. So populism grows out of this cauldron. And uh, populism, after all, is what? It's a kind of political messaging. It's not like liberalism or conservatism that is based on principles and, uh, and has a kind of a policy template that says at least holds out the promise that people will be better off. Populism is very different because it is saying that the elites are taking your share of the pie, that that uh, people are 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 being gouged uh, by this these these uh, political and economic elites, and this and they're held responsible for the decline in the standard of living, the loss of jobs for many things, for the cultural shift that is taking place in values. So populism is different. It's not based on principles, but it's really based on a very aggressive economic and political program, which is based on rage and anger. And then, um, if I understand it correctly, and I'll use Trump as the example again, because it seems like the easiest example, uh, certain politicians will feed that populism. They'll feed it red meat to continue their fear and their rage and their anger. Is that is that about right? Well, they 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 hold out a promise. I mean, we have to say that uh, that if you if Trump or Orban or uh, in the UK uh, uh, you 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 can uh, win elections based on uh, hate speech and fear, particularly fear and, and, and the use of false, false uh, information, of course, uh, this becomes a recipe for holding on to power. So uh, the spread of uh, the big lie and hate speech becomes an endemic part of the populist message. And actually, what we see in uh, studies in the United States is that the Democrats have also begun to use the same kinds of techniques, not to the same extent, but significantly in, at the electoral level in the recent House elections. Uh, Democrats see that this is a recipe for winning elections, or at least neutralizing your opposition. So the whole nature of, of political discourse has changed, uh, driven also by social media as well as other factors. I'm just curious about, um, I, I have, uh, I mean, I, I, I would call myself a centrist, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not real a big fan of getting anywhere close to the fringe of the left or right. Sometimes I think that the left doesn't do themselves any favors by how they conduct um, certain, not, not even policies, but 
you know, like the way that they say the, that, that there are certain groups that you can't criticize because that is, quote unquote, punching down. And that infuriates the right. It, it feels like sometimes the left's main um, flaw is shoveling coal into the cauldron of the fiery anger of the right. Am, am I way off on that or do you see that as well? Well, I, th- I think I think we should, we should try to be a bit more concrete because these are very broad generalizations. So first of all, that across uh, Europe and in North America, the left has been really marginalized. Uh, and we're talking about the electoral left. Uh, and in Britain, of course, the red walls collapsed. In France, the red walls have collapsed. So we can't talk about the left setting the agenda. Uh, sometimes, uh, for instance, we saw in Ontario that uh, to introduce the Nazis and deny Ontarians uh, unionize Ontarians the right the the right to uh, strike that such massive uh, pushback uh, they actually succeeded in forcing the premier to withdraw this 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 anti union legislation. So I think the in certainly in Ontario and Canada, uh, six of the ten premiers are uh, conservatives. So we, we don't see that the that quote the left as a, a as a powerful political actor is really setting the agenda in Canada, and I think the uh, we can see this in other countries as well. In the recent um, House elections in the United States. Uh, there are more election deniers elected uh, in this election than the number in the Republican Party than previously. So if people thought that you couldn't be elected about be, by being, making these extremist claims and taking these extremist stands, I think uh, have been proven to be wrong. Uh, the Republicans are more extreme today than previously. So who is this left that they are talking about? Well, I, I, I mean... Is it a whipping it, boy? Is it? They set up a straw man to say, well, this is what these people are doing. But in Florida, with DeSantos, for instance, he has, uh, you know, he opposed masking. He has uh, opposed uh, direct interference in, uh, in, in the school curriculum, saying that, Teaching racism is uh, is not allowed. Uh, so there's a lot of. Uh, uh, it's not the left which is in power. It's really the the far right which seems to be getting more powerful compared this year compared to last year. I think that's is a worrisome trend. Yeah, uh, pardon me because I, I think it is sloppy, and I, I have the same complaint when people sort of generalize the left or the right. Um, let me clarify. What I think I meant was, you know, the 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 goals that the left sets for itself um, that circle around things like identity politics. And I don't mean it in the Jordan Peterson way. I just mean, you know, it feels like there are different rules for different groups. And if you're more marginalized, um, the rules change than if you're privileged. And to a certain extent, I think a lot of people understand that. But I don't think that certain people on the right or the far right understand the logic behind that if equality is the goal. And, I'm, and that's sort of what I mean. Like if, if uh, you know, certain players on the left uh, propped up sometimes by a mainstream media that is very, very careful not to criticize certain organizations like Black Lives Matter, for example, um, they're off limits. You cannot touch them because you'll be a racist. Are those the things that sort of help um, light the fire under populists? Uh, I think there are other, uh, many other factors that have triggered uh, the rise of populism, the spread of populism. I think uh, one of the, the largest is the polarization, uh, economic polarization, where the top 1% uh, have uh, s- such a disproportionate share of wealth at the uh, that point, and that the bottom fifty percent are are struggling really, uh, and have gone backwards economically. So 
uh, all the studies show that the period of open economies, the period of uh, deregulation, the period of uh, privatization has benefited the um, has benefited the professional class and the economic elites. So I think this polarization has triggered the rise, has created, not just triggered, but has created an ecosystem where this message uh, has, uh, it's a message that resonates with many people in their lives. They feel passed over and left behind. So if you look at the... Uh, the uh, Gilets Jaunes, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the protest movement in France uh, against Macron, or you look at the Freedom Convoy here, or you look at the growth of election deniers and anti-vax, they all seem to be located in the flyover zones. There's a regional dimension. There's a, a, lo- a lot of the people are young men who are have very few skills or education. So they're right at the bottom of the economic ladder. And then there are um, uh, uh, Americans, particularly, who fear there's kind of a racial element uh, to to populism, a defense of white America. So if you look at concretely at the... um, uh, the the agenda for many of these populist groups it is to attack political refugees to close borders to uh, attack uh, um, uh, vulnerable people in society uh, to attack the constitution and the rule of law there's a lot there's at the same time we've seen a lot of of political violence which we didn't see previously so these are some of the uh, consequences that the uh, populist movement of the extreme right exploits for its advantage. And it finds supporters in society. There's a reserve army of people who feel, who have grievance, uh, economic and cultural grievance. And that's the, the, the uh, political base of uh, these populist movements as they take different shape and form across the globe. Of course, they're all different because populism is a response to local conditions. It's not like a global movement which is coordinated, but it has such great diversity in it, but it responds to the same political message of uh, fear and anger. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting? I remember in 2016, just before Trump got elected, um, the beginning part of your response just there, when you were talking about the disparity between the sort of the haves and the have-nots, um, that could have been taken verbatim out of a speech from either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. It would be rather unlettered coming out of Donald Trump, but the basic message was, would be the same. And then when you saw the exit polls and you noticed um, that all, like millions of people that were voting Sanders would have voted Trump and millions of people that voted Trump would have voted Sanders as their second choice – I, I asked Max Bernier this, and I asked Noam Chomsky this when they were on the show, and now I'd like to ask you this. What opportunity did we miss when we found out that large swaths of America who would vote either you know, for Bernie Sanders or for Donald Trump actually had a lot in common? Was there an opportunity missed there? Politically. I guess, James, uh, there are certain similarities between uh, left and right. Uh, I think left populism, like Obrador in Mexico, which I know something about, uh, it is, he defines himself as pro-poor, and he has raised the minimum wage uh, four times, maybe five times, in the uh, first uh, period, of, in the first half of his, of his presidency. So the idea of rebuilding uh, uh, public goods, rebuilding health and welfare, uh, health and education systems, uh, reversing privatization of Pemex, this large uh, state-owned uh, company, oil company, which is uh, at the center of the Mex- Mexican economy. This is a very different agenda than uh, Trump, which has deregulated and privatized and uh, rolled back uh, 
safeguards for ordinary people or for the environment. Uh, so these are very different things. It's about the role of government. If, if you wanted to know, uh, I guess, uh, uh, an easy way to understand uh, the populist is they want to reduce the role of government in society on one hand, economically, uh, as a counterweight to the market. And on the other, they want to extend the role of the state uh, into the private spheres of people's lives in terms of abortion, education, health, etc. I mean, very different, very, very different, right? Uh, a, a program from uh, the extreme right than uh, the left. So the only place that we see you might call left uh, populism is in uh, Chile, in uh, in um, Peru, as chaotic as it is, um, in Colombia, uh, in Mexico, as I spoke of before. But that is a problem of rebuilding their economies after uh, two decades of neoliberal po policies. So those countries have been weakened by uh, unleashing markets economically in terms of their development. So the populism is an attempt to mobilize uh, people to um, mobilize people to uh, make possible for the uh, populist left to carry out these reforms. Remember, first and foremost, they are reforms. They want to rebuild uh, not only the left, but the center of the political spectrum. I think uh, populism has a different uh, impact. So if you look at um, the re most recent elections in the United States, what you see is a diminishment of people in the center. Pol pop polarization po pulls apart the left-right spectrum, right? So you have fewer people in the center, uh, fewer people on the left, more people on the right. And Trump in the last, the Republicans had about 70 million votes. So it's a very significant uh, part of uh, the American electorate, which now supports these extreme policies. 10 years ago, you could never have, you would never have guessed this was possible. You'd say, well, what are American politics about? Bread and butter issues, right? About uh, small steps. The populace uh, advocate uh, quite dramatic um, large steps. For instance, how could Republicans vote against regulating drug prices when big pharma is making hundreds of millions of dollars? Right? Uh, I think you just answered your own question. <laughs> well, yes. So you you have Republicans. Uh, you have ten states in the in uh, America which oppose Obamacare. So Americans are denied right to health care if you're a low, you know, not having adequate health care. They, they refuse the subsidies from, uh, from Washington. So compare this with Canada, which is interesting. A lot of us had hoped that there would be uh, a national daycare uh, system. But the political problem, of course, is, is a mountain because you have to get all the premiers to sign on. So how is it that Trudeau uh, was able, over a very long period, with uh, support from the NDP, to create this national daycare plan, which is truly remarkable, like the single largest change in our, in our social welfare system occurred just recently with support from both liberals, conservatives, NDPers. So you, the a possibility uh, in highly polarized settings of for, forming consensus is, is almost impossible. And so what you see is a very, very different uh, political cultures emerging across the globe. That political culture that we saw uh, with the election of Trump, is was that contagious in Canada? Did we did 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 some of our politicians and our people look at that and become affected, impacted, and influenced by that, or did we have a whole independent type of uh, path towards populism on our own? 
Well, I think it's a mistake to think that Canada does not have a populist tradition, right? In Alberta, you had uh, five generations of of populism, uh, including the um, uh, uh, including the most recent string of of premiers, and uh, before that, Eberhard. In Quebec, you had uh, populist traditions uh, with Raoul Cahuet. In the prairies, you had prairie radicalism, which was against basically Eastern-dominated monopolies. But what is significant with the uh, leadership contest uh, is that Palev won the leadership contest with on the first vote. That hadn't happened in 20 years in uh, Canada with 64%. Uh, the uh, he signed up maybe over two hundred thousand new members to vote for him. Uh, so, and uh, I think this uh, opens the door to the possibility that he could well be the next prime minister of Canada. Right? You know, this is something I think Canadians understand. Trudeau will have been in power for ten years, so it's usually the opposition will campaign on a slogan such as, it's time for a change. So I think that we will see more populism at the provincial level, since already there are quite a few uh, in, in the West and in Ontario. Uh, so we'd like to see more of these policies in Canada. We don't know uh, whether they'll follow the Trump model or the Republican model, but they will surely be the same populist uh, set of ideas that uh, will enter Canada because I think the conditions are right. Highly polarized settings, uh, income inequality, grievances against um, elites, grievances against the federal government. It's very interesting that the rallying point, organizing point for the Freedom Convoy, of course, were the attacks on Trudeau, believing that uh, he's a kind of the demonization of Trudeau and this ext- the extreme violence of the language makes you sit up and realize that Canada is not insulated from this, this, the, uh, this phenomena in the least. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Pierre Poilievre's predecessors, Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole, uh, kept with the tradition of new leaders of conservative party leaders, in my memory, um, where they try to attract a farther-to-the-right support group during the leadership campaign, and then will inch their way back to a moderate position during a general election. Are those days over? Like, will Polyev attempt to stay on the right or far right when he campaigns? Because... It feels like that—that's a great possibility, which which would be would have been surprising even a couple of years ago. Well, uh, it's very interesting when you look at uh, different populist leaders like Le Pen in France or Orbán in Hungary uh, or uh, the the premier of uh, Poland. Um, I don't think this old idea of political scientists is borne out that uh, if, if you win office, you become more realistic, pragmatic, more moderate, uh, careful. I think uh, the, that what we've seen is that in um, almost all the cases, populism has radicalized the uh, uh, the the uh, big dog leaders, uh, the authoritarians, the the charismatic leader that uh, wants an office, 
So, uh, example would be Modi, um, you know, who's taken very ex- extreme measures in seizing Kashmir, changing unilaterally. Um, uh, it's uh, denying it its constitutional status, uh, the attacks on Muslims, the introduction of legislation that discriminates against Muslims. Um, so, and in, in other countries, we see the same thing. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that Paul Lev will become necessarily more modern. We can see in Alberta today that uh, uh, Smith, uh, the, who's the, the premier for, for at least another six months, has introduced the Sovereignty Act. Uh, in Saskatchewan, we see the premier uh, introducing the same, same things. They have the right to override the federal government and the Constitution. Now, where does that come from? I must say that any of us would, would say this is, the word, this is crazy stuff. These are whack politicians, wacko politicians. But actually, uh, today we accept this as part of the ongoing blather of, of um, political uh, discourse. So it's quite a different world. The idea that power moderates uh, a government is just uh, not true. And often it has the reverse effect of radicalizing the premier and and the political agenda. Uh, We spoke earlier, at least I said to you earlier, that um, politicians like Trump, probably Ev does it as well, Boris Johnson did it, Le Pen did it, uh, where they throw red meat to um, people that are already angry just to get them more enraged so that the support was sort of cement or solidified. Mm. How much of a responsibility does do politicians like Justin Trudeau have for not delivering messaging in a way that has the same result. So what I mean by that is, I'll, I'll give you two examples. The first example was during the um, pandemic. Uh, he, he went to the well a few times, I thought, too many, when he, he just didn't choose his words wisely. And maybe it was one or, twi- one or two times intentional. But, but he would... He would try to use a qualifier, but then go off on the screen about how people that are vaccine hesitant or or not taking the vaccine are often misogynist and racist. And that. And I didn't think that that was productive. And then um, we saw in Hamilton, I don't think this is his fault, but he, he did the walk from the hotel to his car and people were yelling and screaming at him. And I thought that was disgusting. If he does that again, is he playing a game? You know, like, is there a responsibility for a guy like Trudeau not to get into that swamp and say things that will further inflame people on on that side of the spectrum? Well, these are always uh, political judgment calls, right? If, uh, you know, with the anti-vax movement, which was uh, uh, an unparalleled threat to public health and uh, a responsible... Uh, res- responsible uh, response to uh, 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 the pandemic, uh, a national health emergency, um, I think leadership required that he, he say uh, that, that he lead. And the lead was to follow the science and the health officials. So I think it's very surprising the number of Canadians who became anti-vaxxers. Now, it may not ever have been more than 20%, but with a a pandemic, of course, if people are defying science and uh, based on lies and miscalculated misinformation, uh, of course, I think it's important that Trudeau stand up for what he thinks is right and what the majority of Canadians support. Of course, the role of the populace is to intimidate um, uh, public health officials and uh, political leaders by their defiance and their spread of misinformation and, and, and lies. So, of course, ultimately, this has enormous impact uh, on the public health system, on nurses, and uh, the spread of 
of uh, the spread of uh, COVID. And of course, many people died as a result of this. So I think that people who defy a, he a health war on uh, a pandemic, uh, you have to say, wow, uh, the role of Trudeau is to call them out and to say no to these people. So I think they expect that somehow their belligerence will intimidate and silence uh, public health officials. I think they were shown to be wrong. And by and large, all the polls uh, that I read and that perhaps you read showed that Canadians were supported the government on their health stand and uh, on, on vaccinations and, and um, on masking and on distancing. I must say, this was an, an extraordinary time. Canadians had never experienced that. And then in the midst of this enormous crisis, you have uh, anti-vaxxers and um, anti-maskers who are putting uh, the, the uh, health of others at risk. And uh, I think Trudeau did not do a bad job. There were bigger problems, right, in the... As we all know, I don't want to go down... I can talk more about that. But I think in thousands of... Probably hundreds of thousands of people died needlessly because of, of weak responses to COVID and the pandemic in Mexico. A very weak response from, from Obrador. But Bolsonaro, they had in Brazil... It had the uh, only, the death, the number of those who died was only surpassed by the Americans. And uh, the uh, Brazilian Senate um, struck a committee to investigate the government's response. And they said over 400,000 Brazilians died needlessly because of the uh, reckless and uh, tepid response of uh, Bolsonaro. So this was a, a very, this was a watershed for uh, sanity and for public health. And I think that what we see is that the populace have, have recruited from the anti-vaxxers, which have pushed them, of course, much further to the right and, in, and to adopt and embrace extreme policies. Paul Lavra certainly the Conservatives in par Parliament didn't want to wear a mask. The entire country was required to wear a mask, but the Conservative uh, members of a part of that caucus, a large number of that caucus, were anti-maskers. Anti this was uh, incredible. Then the House of Commons took a vote and they were, uh, they were found to be, they, they were required if they wanted to enter the House to wear a mask. But I think it's, such a shocking state of affairs. You have to vote to compel members of parliament to wear a mask, which is in the public interest. Yeah, that was pretty weird theater. Um, if you could, I think your microphone cord is stuck on your. Uh, ah, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. It was just sort of dragging and crackling. Okay. It, it sounds fine now. Uh, polarization. Um, I have been writing about this for about 15 years. Um, you could see it coming like Haley's Comet. Remember that was in the sky for like a month? Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it, it just, it boggled my mind though that I didn't realize, even though I had been writing about it for so long, that a health crisis would actually be a barometer to just how bad polarization is these days. It, now, I, 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 and I think we all sort of share sort of the, um, the idea that common ingredients for polarization are things like political messaging, are things like social media, and things like that. Were you surprised, um, even in hindsight, that a public health crisis like this would actually prove to be a juggernaut and sort of the granddaddy of, of issues that we could become hyper-polarized over? I think, it, I think looking back, uh, we were, uh, certainly speaking for myself, I could have never anticipated uh, the extent to which uh, people who are uh, not doctors, not scientists, uh, not health professionals had, saw themselves as uh, experts so they could defy um, uh, science 
about uh, in the middle of a pandemic. I remember, um, so that I think took, really I found shocking that people have, you know, with no education, no access to information, believe in, the, in this falsehood and rumor as a basis to conduct their lives. So there was something, you know, this is about what I talked about earlier, is um, fear and anger. Um, and I think this became anger against the government, anger against uh, science, anger against public health, uh, against expertise, people believing that uh, this was uh, kind of stuff that was made up. Uh, I don't think you're young enough, old enough, sorry, to remember Gordon Sinclair when, uh, who led a campaign against fluoride in the drinking water of uh, Ontario. It was incredible. I was just a kid then. And he would say, beyond, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, CFRB, I think. He was a very popular writer and broadcaster. And he, he campaigned against fluoride, right? Calling it rat poison. So, um, and, you know, this was a kind of, a kind of I guess, eccentric, kind of uh, far out opposition to fluoride. Um, all wrong, all uh, based on nothing except his prejudices. Uh, I don't, it wasn't, but, but he had a following it's because he, it, he had a following. Well. Yeah. Mm? But you know what, with, with our daughter, one time I went to, I remember going to, beginning going to the dentist. I mean, many parents must have this experience. I say, gee, uh, does Charlotte have, in, it, what about her cavities? You know, she's pretty good uh, brushing her teeth and stuff like that. And the dentist looks at you like you're from Mars. You know, kids don't have cavities because they have put fluoride in the water, which is kind of a, a prophylactic against cavities. So, of course, they make their money in other ways, through teeth straightening and other things. But um, obviously, it had a major impact, fluoride in the drinking water on on uh, children's uh, dental health. So there are people who get swept up in these campaigns, you know, against vaccinations against measles, vaccinations against mumps. I also remember growing up when polio uh, was, was a scourge, a, a great fear among families that your child would contract polio. When Salk and others came up with uh, the uh, anti-polo uh, vaccine, I don't remember anyone saying, uh, "You know, we our kids shouldn't be vaccinated." So this this turning of the page, the crossing of the red line of the anti-vax movement, has been very dramatic and traumatizing for society. People needlessly died, and. Uh, I think it's a, a, a trauma that we're going to bear uh, with us for a long time to come. Yeah, Windsor, carelessness I mean, and I indifference. If I recall correctly, Windsor actually did ban fluoride. <laughs> well, it, you know, uh, you have to accept that uh, communities do things, right? Uh, we live in a society where uh, at the city level, cities can pass resolutions. Some of them are... I think quite, uh, in the case of Florida, I think that was wrong. But cities also pass um, uh, resolutions that this will be a nuclear-free zone, that they will invest in artists, they will build public housing, they will protect uh, the core of the city, uh, they will uh, ensure safety for their citizens. Uh, I think a strong uh, city government can do all these things. And often, they're, since they're closer to the people than the province or the feds, of course, that is their role. But you're right. They can, they can do other things, which uh, I don't, I'm not in agreement with, and you, maybe you're not in agreement with, but they have a right to do it, and people can repeal the laws when uh, you change city council.
Um, it used to be free speech. When when someone would say that, um, it, it it didn't used to irk people on the center or center left, and now it does because it feels like ownership of that term has been co-opted uh, by I don't know what you want to call it, just the far right, I guess. And I think you and I both know that it is a uh, a, a main pillar of liberalism and progressivism. It was basically born or at least championed the most on campuses like Berkeley in the United States. Is the mantra that the best fight against bad ideas are good ideas expired because of the internet and the things that we're facing when it comes to misinformation? Well, the internet is in social medias. It's changed everything. Um, at, in the early days, uh, uh, bef- at the turn of the century, in the 1990s, the, uh, with the advent of the internet, many many of us thought that access to information would create a more progressive, enlightened, uh, equity-driven society. You know, uh, uh, the idea that uh, you need Im- information is imperfect. So people having access to information, um, being able to generate and be motivated to to do research, to to um, you know be able to look at the medicine that you're being prescribed, or um, find uh, in many areas the idea that uh, the internet was going to be. A new vista, a new frontier for, um, to use a, an old-fashioned term, for individual enlightenment and empowerment. But around 2000, of course, it began to change this internet, this idealization of the internet as a public good, um, changed quite dramatically with the advent of social media. And it also became a place for misinformation, not authentic information, for, for conspiracy theorizing, for anger, for uh, fear, for um, uh, the um, dark side of human motivation. So uh, there may be, within every individual, this capacity for anger and grievance. And if this is socialized and people are able to meet others like themselves, of course, it, uh, it empowers the dark side of, of human nature rather than the enlightenment side of human nature. So with the internet as a global force, of course, it, it encourages um, people to find other individuals of like minds. So we see something very different because it's unregulated. It's kind of a frontier society. It brings out this uh, dark side of human nature and um, it's not regulated. And um, it has changed the way politics is conducted. I think that's this idea of messaging based on fear and anger uh, in which the world, in which the populist message is that the big dogs are gobbling up your share of the pie, means you have enemies. And it's based upon a a, a system of political messaging of uh, your enemy, finding out your enemy and destroying them. And that is what causes polarization because there's no middle ground world of antagonism and um, uh, the belief that the world is against you. So this is a a, a constructed reality. Of course, the world is not like that. People cooperate. They they look out for people, uh, want to understand that that, uh, working together has uh, many advantages, many problems such as climate warming or public health or 
access to, for women access to an abortion. These are all things that have to be decided collectively. And I think the populists really are trying to destroy and dismantle that collective side of society, which has enabled us to benefit from technology, from a rising standard of living and the like. So this is a very different world universe that uh, social media has created. And I'm not sure it's, it's like a, this frontier, this notion of frontierism and uh, the gunslinger is very difficult to rein in because the, 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 uh, what people want in uh, the internet is this absolute freedom. And of course, when you have extremists wanting absolute freedom, uh, that, go, that means a lot of danger for the majority of society. Yeah, I remember uh, being in high school in, the, in like the mid-90s, and it being explained to us that the internet was going to be like a library at your fingertips. And then I grew up, and I'm an assistant librarian uh, in my day job. And the, the interesting thing about the difference between a library and the internet because they are kind of the same. One's sort of analog and the other one's digital, right? But um, often I have to, to weed books off the shelf to make room for new books. And you come across these books sometimes that are just like, well, this is pretty crazy. This is obviously not factual anymore. It was written in 1973. We better get rid of this one. Um, on the internet, though, it is not a needle in a haystack like it is at the library. It is everywhere. Disinformation is, is everywhere. And I don't know what I'm more afraid of. Um, the way that disinformation impacts society or the idea of someone regulating information online. Well, I, I, <clears throat> of course, that's the dilemma. Right, I think you've put your finger on it. Uh, the, the, the belief that if it is regulated in, uh, responsibly, that uh, you might lose a great deal right? Uh, It might be intrusive regulation. But, you know, much of our lives, uh, we accept car seats. Sorry, uh, 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 seatbelts. So we don't feel badly about uh, that. Um, We we don't feel badly that uh, you can't smoke in a restaurant or in a bar. Uh, I don't see people out on the street uh, they, uh, you know, uh, rising up, demanding the, uh, the right to, to fill other people's lungs with their secondhand smoke. So there's lots of things that we accept as regulation. So they, now we don't know whether our views about the internet is our skepticism of, about big government being a bad regulator or taking something away from us. For some of us, I think that's probably the case. On the other hand, uh, there's lots of things that uh, the government regulates and the internet, uh, you know, you go to the cinema, there are rules that you can't uh, create panic and so put people at risk. Uh, So I'm not so sure what it is that uh, particularly that says uh, that we can't uh, think about uh, how how the internet should accept the norms and values which are already well established. Well, you know that the internet is regulated, both by government and uh, you, uh, and that the owners of the internet are private. Is private capital? They should be held accountable for their uh, their. Um, the ability to operate and make money in the same way as any other business. So you know that certain things about hate speech, child pornography, uh, violence, hatred, uh, are not acceptable on the internet, right? It's, but of course, you're, you would write to be said, well, there are lots of ways the dark net gets around these things or other people get around these things through alternative channels. Uh, on the internet. But I think we just have to live with this tension until there's some broader consensus in society of what uh, a framework should be. So these are being constantly uh, discussed by experts and by government, by the industry. 
because uh, if uh, wait uh, for the buffering to stop, I don't know if anyone can hear me or not. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, sorry, I missed the last part answer, but I think oh, the audience. So heard. the last part is, <laughs> yeah. of course, these things are being discussed and debated both by industry and by uh, experts, by different parts of society. You know, if you have a kid, you don't want them uh, um, in, in, abused by uh, predators over the internet. So, of course, it's in, in your self-interest yeah. to, to have uh, regulations about practice and that, it, that uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, the, uh, the other big uh, technology giants sh should be uh, held accountable for what happens. They have a liability issue and a responsibility issue, which, which we have to visit uh, periodically and improve, obviously. Um, we, we have about seven minutes, or sorry, about five minutes. I'm just curious. Um, globalization, one of those issues where when f the NAFTA agreement was first announced, I was pretty young, but I remember studying it in college uh, and and listening to it uh, when my dad was listening to it, actually, uh, while it was happening. And it seemed like the left at the time, if I'm not mistaken, were really worried about free trade. And that is totally flipped. And there's a bunch of issues that are like that. Free speech is another one of those issues that sort of fall into that category. What is it about free trade and globalization that um, seemed to bother the left way back when and bother the right now? And... Did the left have a point? I'm sorry, let me just rephrase that. Did progressives have a point when NAFTA was carved out? And do um, do conservatives have a point now that it sort of has created uh, a vast inequality um, and, and have taken away jobs from uh, developed countries and gave them to developing countries? And how are we supposed to feel good about that? Can you give me your sort of, um, you know, your synopsis on what globalization has done and if it's and who it's good for? Well, uh, the, the big issue around free trade of the, of the Moroni government initially was that it would uh, create jobs for Canadians. even said it was going to create 200,000 jobs. And uh, industry uh, also thought it was a good, good idea to have uh, more access to the American market. But uh, what progressives said was, yes, uh, having access to the market was good, but import competition would mean loss of jobs. So when you sign a free trade agreement, if you have very strong industries like Germany, of course, it can sign many agreements because Germany has a trade surplus with, uh, with uh, many, many countries because they have industrial policies to row and steer the economy. So the problem in Canada was that many industries would suffer enormous job loss, job losses, and that companies would move to Mexico or the, to the United States. So that was the reason that many Canadians were skeptical, that we had no, it was like free trade from a standing start. It made no sense unless you had, beside free trade, gradually over 10 years, uh, that gave uh, business enough time to develop stronger industries that were capable of competing in the United States. So when you look at the empirical side, after five years, uh, I remember reading many studies which showed that uh, basically Canadians lost jobs. Secondly, uh, Canadian firms found they were uh, being swamped by American imports. So free trade was good for the Americans, but I don't think for a lot of Canadian businesses. So that's the, 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 the sort of the uh, a simple, simple, very simple explanation of the asymmetry between Canada and the United States. Of course, free trade could work if you have strong with strong economies, but if you have strong with weak, of course, you have a lot of problems, even with Britain leaving the EU, they have massive problems today. 300,000 shortfalls, uh, shortage of labor, many industries struggling because they've lost uh, their European market and they have no alternative. So, of course, if you're not prepared for uh, 
for a dramatic reshuffling of the cards, of course, you come out a loser. And that's what we see in Britain today uh, in terms of uh, not not being able to replace and whole, uh, replace Europe as their largest trading partner. So I think this is a warning, right, uh, for Canada or for other countries. Free trade works best over a long period with a long period of adjustment and you have to deal with the asymmetries. Uh, government has to address the asymmetries between trading partners or else Canadian business and enterprises end up being losers. They're swamped by cheap imports. I don't know why it's so difficult to understand. It's, it's like uh, the ABCs of uh, economics. Any first-year student should be able to understand this. Uh, if you can just lift up your mic to your mouth again, I have one yeah. final question. Um, and I know academics never like to look into a crystal ball, um, maybe because they're atheists. I don't know. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but if you were to figure out a sort of, um, not a cure, but, but something to sort of help stave off the populism that's happening in Canada, what would we have to see in order to see that happen? I think this is a very difficult question because when you look in uh, you look to the future that if you say well how do you if populism the root of populism is this anger and fear and grievance against enemies internal and external um, 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 it's just not an economic problem right so it's important that People's standard of living rises. People don't feel they're left behind, that they're trapped in dead-end jobs, that uh, governments are addressing the top issues, which in Canada always, for the last 20 years has been the broken health system. So, And people have to feel that they're integrated into society so that people in small-town Canada or Midtown Canada, people have access to services. They fear, they feel that their needs are recognized and met by uh, by public officials, by their government. I think a lot of people are just angry about being neglected and overlooked, and that the wealthy get wealthier, and the top one percent uh, don't seem to be. Pull, uh, pulling their, their, contributing their share of, uh, contributing their share to the, to the rest of Canada. So, of course, there are these antagonisms which are rooted in the economy, rooted in psychology, rooted in regionalism. A government that uh, does not have uh, strong programs and uh, is able to reach out to Canadians and create a uh, a strong tie between the government and and the citizen. Of course, uh, the populism have, will continue to be a powerful force in the country. The book is "Has Populism Won the War on Liberal Democracy?" Daniel Drich, thank you so much for joining. I learned a lot, and uh, I hope to have you back sometime soon. Thank you, sir. Good. Nice being nice being nice with you, and thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Great night. Daniel Drake, you know it's funny um, because I know you guys don't see it uh, on your end. He was frozen for the last half hour like this. <laughs> I was trying my best not to look. Um, what an interesting guy. Um, I love it when I have people on the show that are uh, a lot smarter than me because uh, I learned something and he's certainly a lot more brilliant than I am. Um, you know, it, it's interesting though. You know, the, the way that he explains the underpinnings of populism it shouldn't sound like a surprise to to, to many of us I, I often wonder though the people that are entrenched in that politique the the people that that engage in um you know civil actions that would give the impression that they are a populist i don't think they know that that, that that's what they are I think when people tell them often they they push back a little bit too. And uh 
And it's just really interesting, um, you know, with the combination of polarization and social media and the way that the economy is going. And, um, you know, you know, we, when was the last time you heard anyone talk about unity? Uh, I, I don't think I can even remember uh, the last time I remember a, a politician um, staying on, a, on some sort of message of unity. Um, but, you know, um, hopefully our future doesn't look as bleak as it feels that it might be almost every time I open up a newspaper. Okay. Tomorrow on Blackballed, uh, what I'm trying to do right now is set up an interview with a guy named Lance Christie. Lance Christie just won a court case in the UK after being sued by the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. And the, uh, the church lost. Um, it was actually a criminal trial, um, or maybe it was libel and defamation. Uh, either way, um, he was acquitted. It was a big victory. Uh, for him, he ex-member, excommunicated, the same fucking shit that you hear all over the place, all over the world with this cult, uh, you know, uh, excommunicated from his family, um, completely destroyed as far as his personal life went, as far as his business went, and he won his case today. So we went back and forth today. Um, he'll be traveling tomorrow night, so hopefully we can squeeze that in in the morning. And... Um, and I have a tentative podcast schedule for tomorrow night with Sam G, who had to cancel because of home renovations <laughs> on Monday. That was the first for, for Blackballed. And then, of course, on Friday, we will have Casual Friday as well. Um, I really appreciate everyone for joining me. It's been a very rough week um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I love doing this podcast and talking to you guys because it, uh, it, it is my therapy. And, uh, and I don't think about all the distractions and all the other stuff when I do this show. So um, I really appreciate you guys listening and we'll see you next time on Black Bolt. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.